I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Francesca Caccini is one of the forgotten women of classical music. She was a singer, an instrumentalist, excelling at the lute, the theorbo, the harpsichord, the guitar and the harp, and above all, an immensely talented composer. Before she reached her 15th birthday, Caccini had performed before many of Europe's most important families. From the age of 20, she worked full-time as a musician at the Medici court. She rose to become one of its best-paid employees. If you don't know her name, it will be, well, in part, because many of her works have not survived. Although she did create one surviving opera, the first by a woman, when opera was only just coming into being as a form. In her lifetime, her work was described as una musica stupenda, and Cristoforo Bronzini wrote that her music transformed human beings into gods. To discuss the life and work of Francesca Caccini, I'm joined by Deborah Roberts, Artistic Director of the Brighton Early Music Festival, who has staged Caccini's opera and this year made a film of it, which will be released in the summer, and Dr Anna Beer, Fellow of Kellogg College, Oxford, and the author of Sounds and Sweet Airs, The Forgotten Women of Classical Music. Dr Beer's new book on the forgotten women of English literature, Eve Bites Back, will be released in October. Dr. Beer, thank you so much for making time to talk to me here at Kellogg College. And we're going to be talking about Francesca Caccini. Perhaps I can start by asking you, what do you think is most significant about her work? Why should we remember her? I need to go back to when I was putting together a book about female composers and doing my initial research and Francesca Caccini's name came up as the first woman to write an opera. And so her significance in the textbooks that I was reading then is very much first past the post. 
Delving deeper, however, I realised that that is really to belittle her achievement as a creative artist, as a composer, and as a person. Because yes, she was the composer of an amazing opera in 1625, but she did so much more. She sustained a career in one of the toughest working environments you can possibly imagine, the Medici court. And she produced music day in and day out. She collaborated with amazing people. And she changed the landscape of music in her time for everyone and not just for women. So let's dial back and learn a bit about her. Tell us about the mixed blessing of her parentage. Back in the 16th century, it really, really mattered who your parents were at every level of society. And Francesca Caccini was lucky in some ways, as you say, to have parents who were very much in the music business. So her father was Giulio Caccini, extremely well-known, influential, reasonably well-paid as a composer and as a performer. I'll come back to him in a moment, but just a word about Francesca's mother, who we know very little about, except that... She was a singer, Lucia, and she died when Francesca was really very young. Her real legacy to her daughter was her voice, her stunning singing voice, and that every account of Francesca attests to that. But Giulio was the dominant figure, and a mixed blessing because he was powerful, he was influential, he established a kind of stable of female singers and put them on the map, and many of them were family members or extended family members. Great, you might say. He provides a platform for his daughter. The other great thing he does for Francesca is he spots her talent. He doesn't just nurture her as a musician. He nurtures her intellectual ability. He gives her the kind of education, makes sure she has the kind of education that artisan women very, very rarely had. In fact, artisan people very, very rarely had. So he's taken her talent, run with it, given her the skills to be part of his performing cohort. The downside is that Giulio is controlling, at best, an ego that gets completely out of control and gets him into all sorts of trouble with his aristocratic and royal patrons. And when it comes to Francesca herself, he tries to steer her career in the ways that will do him the best good. And that's how he uses the female performers that he works with. They're to showcase his talent as a musical leader, as a composer. What's fascinating about Francesca is that in her mid to late teens, having been put on this incredible platform, she performs in front of 3,000 people at the age of 13. She takes that very broad-ranging education, all that experience, the travel, they go to France, the French court of Henry IV and his wife, who was Medici. And by her mid-late teens, she is as famous in her own right, and Giulio is just her father, rather than her being the daughter of Giulio Caccini. Do you think, nevertheless, that much of Caccini's success, the fact that she can move from being a singer to being a composer, or indeed being a singer in the first place, is about being in the right place at the right time? Yes, (laughs) it's a simple answer. All Artists to be successful have to be in the right place at the right time. You could say that about Shakespeare being in at the beginning of English theatre world. You could say that about John Milton two generations later. It was the Civil War and the Cromwellian period that turned him into the great author that he is. But as Caccini herself says in a wonderful letter, she says, I'm always ready to catch 
the Medici ball, you know, throw it to me and I will catch it. And she did. She seized her opportunities. And for her as a woman, the right place and right time is not just the glories of a very wealthy court in Florence and beyond the Tuscan duchy, but the sense as a woman, she was in the right time because her career depended on two very powerful women. One being Christine of Lorraine, who was the Grand Duchess and who came to power because her husband fell ill. And then, rather conveniently, her son was also ill, Cosimo. And Christine became the de facto leader of Tuscany. So you've got a woman in power. She is followed by Cosimo's wife, Maria Magdalena of Austria. Cosimo remains poorly. And so you have these two very powerful women creating a court which showcases women's talent. And that gives Francesca Caccini her opportunity. She is hired to provide a soundtrack to these women's rule, to justify it, to celebrate it, and to embody it as, I'm a powerful woman, look at the incredible women I can use to bolster my power. The problem with that is that as soon as a man gets back on the throne, as it were, Caccini's opportunities dwindle hugely. And so right time, right place only goes so far. There's another way of thinking about the right place, though. There are communities that are only in the last 20, 30 years truly being understood as vital places for women's creativity, and that is the convents of Italy and beyond. And forget this idea that somehow music is going on behind completely closed doors. There's a permeability between the convent and the outside world. These women aren't completely enclosed. In fact, that's one of the reasons the church gets so stressed by it, that there are people going in and enjoying this music and appreciating and commissioning it. So Francesca Caccini is also on the edges and indeed fully part of this world by the end of her life. So she's got the Medici court dominated by women, but she's also got this ready-made community of women making music, performing music behind not quite closed doors. And yet what is striking is that it's only been in the last few decades that she's really been credited for that work. And as well as centuries of male leadership, I wonder if one reason for that is that what she did was very collaborative. We know, for example, that she collaborated with Michelangelo Buonarroti, not the Michelangelo, but his namesake and great nephew. Do you think the fact that she was working with others that means that her contribution has been buried? I think there are so many answers to that question, and it preoccupies me almost every day of my life. How do these highly successful creative women get forgotten? So one, yes, is collaboration. And it's just much easier for a woman's name to slip off the credits list. There's also the sheer reality of putting on a show in the 16th or 17th century. It takes a lot of people. We don't know the names of the carpenters or the master masons who are putting together these performances either. And that's also to do with class. She is an artisan. She's a servant. And why would we know her name? Mm. So I think that's a factor as well. And that isn't necessarily about gender. Collaboration, yes. Many of the works she produced were occasional, necessarily ephemeral, and they're not going to be recorded. And the one publication we have from her is to the glory of, you've guessed it, the Medici family. We know her name in connection with it almost by chance. 
And so, so much art was to the glory of the ruling power rather than to the glory of the creator of the art. We haven't yet got to the 19th century and the idea of the single genius, the lone genius creating their works in isolation. All those reasons add a dose of just straightforward sexism. And finally, add something that, again, preoccupies me looking at the works of female authors, composers, and artists, is who is creating the legacy. And in Michelangelo Buonarroti's case, the nephew, as we've said, he makes sure to create that legacy. And I can point to other men of the time who find a method to keep their works alive, to create an archive, as it were, to have heirs, creative heirs, literary heirs, musical heirs, not necessarily biological heirs, who will sustain their name. And that is just much harder for women. The amount of women who put in their will, I wish these works to be published, and then nothing happens, is a bit depressing. Now, of course, we'll never hear Caccini's singing voice, but I was struck by the fact that you quoted her earlier. What can we learn of her through her own words. There's a wonderful contrast between the way in which her singing voice is described, a finely focused thread of sound where offending dissonances which should offend the ear are made into something beyond dissonance, a kind of celestial harmony. It all sounds very transcendent, very lovely. The woman herself was feisty, outspoken and... I love her for it. I mean, her voice shines through in the correspondence that does survive and in the encounters we do read about. And nowhere more than when she takes on, I think the technical term is the sleazeball of her world, the court poet Andrea Salvadori. And that encounter for me encapsulates Caccini's strength and her willingness to take on the fight. Well, tell me about it then. <laughs> well, Salvadori was apparently a very good-looking womanizer, and he was renowned, and I quote, for accommodating the parts and the music to favor the one who was in his heart. In other words, seducing young singers who would then get preferential treatment is the casting couch. What Salvadori didn't expect was Caccini's response, and a contemporary writer noticed this. Describing Caccini, a woman as fierce and restless as she was capable in singing and acting could not abide this behavior and began to expose and talk about him, first in passing behind his back and then openly into his face, revealing his intentions and designs and the origins of his favoritism. Now, that whistleblowing led for a brief period for Salvadori to be distanced by the Medici women. And more importantly, his supply of singer stroke victims dried up. Salvadori fought back. <laughs> he vented his anger in a gloriously titled poem called Donne Musiche Parlano dall'Inferno, Women Musicians Speak from Hell, <laughs> which was probably performed at court in 1621. Caccini, understandably, was mad with rage. And again, a correspondent said, it took a lot of effort to quiet her. <laughs> So you get this idea of a feisty woman, a woman willing to call out, but working with the system. But the lovely thing was, I mean, Salvadori is rehabilitated, but Caccini waits and she waits and she waits. And one of my favourite examples is of the way she waited for a moment is that Salvadori was commissioned to produce a court entertainment and Caccini walks in at almost the last moment and sabotages this, pointing out that there's a rather you know, dubious episode in the opera that he's been writing. And Salvadori had to rewrite the entire thing in eight days. 
He then fought back, casting Francesca in the role of Discordia. I mean, I could go on. This is a wonderfully creative community, but it's also vicious and backstabbing, and Caccini holds their own. But the person who we find this all out from ends the account by saying, exulting at this, even though she was cast as Discordia, she always said that the response was not equal to the blow. In other words, she knew she had won. She had finally silenced Salvadori. So we have this woman of high achievement, high moral character, this restless, fierce energy that sends her into doing sort of whistleblowing activities like this one. And I suppose that gives us a sense that in some ways she was operating against the gendered expectations of the time. What else do you think it meant for her to be a woman? I mean, what did it mean for her circumstances? What did it mean for the pressures upon her and the expectations of her? I think living in the body of a woman, becoming a mother, a wife, mother, widow, mother again, widow again, is much less important to her career. So the bodily experience of being a woman, women were expected to perform and work right up until the moment they gave birth. The horror of miscarriages and stillbirths was, you're supposed to take it in your stride. So living in the physical body of a woman, I don't think is the key. What Caccini negotiates, she walks a tightrope of being a powerful, successful, professional woman in a society that had certain utterly entrenched beliefs about what women could and shouldn't do. With music in particular, even more so than words, the singing woman is again and again presented as, bluntly, a lascivious whore seeking to entrap rational man. There's a horror of unchastity associated with their art to the extent that female singers had to have chastity tests. And it's just utterly horrible reading about the everyday lives of these women and the controls upon them. The goal was, for Caccini, was to present as above all this. So to be honest and chaste and obedient and what have you. The only thing she couldn't be, of course, is silent. And so she's got to negotiate this tightrope of being a good woman in an evil field, as it were, in an evil profession. And she does that. And the fierceness is not just for herself, it's for the young women that she's training up as singers. She protects them as best as she can. And I find that very touching, actually, women looking out for women in this violent, predatory Medici world in which the borderline between being a performing woman and being a courtesan is porous, shall we say, or is contested. Now, we've talked about how she has been forgotten, but how was she spoken of in her lifetime? The biggest tribute we get to her is written by the Medici women to justify the rule of women. And in this immense book, page after page is devoted to Francesca Caccini, who is described as the perfect woman in every possible respect, with the rather damning line, she's lovely, but she's not a looker. And one of the reasons they have to do that is this fear of the beautiful woman. You know, it's good that she's plain, because it means that it adds to her virtue. So she is the poster girl for Medici power and female power, and she has to be a good girl. As I've been saying, though, other documents at the time suggest a much more edgy, difficult, outspoken woman, but that doesn't get into the publicity. (laughs) The last thing I want to ask you is that, as you've said, that we know that she lost her husband, was left as the sole working parent of a four-year-old child, and then marries again, has another child, widowed again. What did that mean in professional terms? 
she seems, if anything, to have been a survivor. Resilience is the word I would definitely use. I mean, she keeps dusting herself down and picking herself up and getting on with it. And you can see that day by day in the way she works. She has a commission thrown at her, do this in three days. And she turns it round. And then the Duchess walks in and says, could you just change that bit? And she does. She's very pragmatic. She's very level-headed. She's inspired, I think, by sometimes an anger, which sustains her. She's also helped enormously by this long-standing friendship with Michelangelo Buonarroti. And it's a remarkable friendship between two people who understood each other and supported each other and kept working together over decades, which is not easy. But to come back to what I was saying earlier about the significance of marriage, I think that professionally speaking, both marriages were helpful to Caccini. And I also think we should be wary of seeing marriages as love matches or as somehow fulfilling Francesca Caccini emotionally, because that's simply not how it worked. You were lucky if love was involved. But strikingly, both those men did seem to love Francesca. I've mentioned her first husband's will, her second husband's will is equally generous. Generous not just in money, but generous in words. So she inspired love from those two men, even though, you know, perhaps that wasn't what was part of the deal originally, since they were both brokered marriages. So I find that encouraging when I look back on her life. But in the end, I see her as coming back to her work. And that may be my own personal bias through my own life's vicissitudes that I have found having creative work to do so important. And I found the friendship of fellow creative people so important. So again, there may be a little bit of projection going on there, but we all do that with people in the past. And I've just been inspired from day one by Caccini's combination of professionalism, feistiness and pragmatism. She gets the job done. I just wish we had more of her notes and music to hear her musical voice. So The soprano, Sidney Anderson, singing Non so se quel sorriso, I Know Not If That Smile, by Francesca Caccini. That was featured in a programme called Italian Sirens, recorded at the Zilke Hall at the Hobby Centre for the Performing Arts in Houston, Texas. My thanks to Ars Lyrica Houston for allowing us to use extracts from their programme in this podcast. You can watch it and other performances of Caccini's music on the Ars Lyrica Houston YouTube channel. In a moment, I'm going to be finding out more about Caccini's musical output and style with Deborah Roberts, the Artistic Director of the Brighton Early Music Festival. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? 
Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is not just the Tudors with me, Professor Susanna Lipscomb. And now that we've heard about the life of Francesca Caccini from Dr. Anna Beer, let's turn our attention to the music itself. I'm delighted to be joined by Deborah Roberts, the Artistic Director of the Brighton Early Music Festival. So Deborah, we've heard that Caccini was creating music in the court of the Medici in the early 17th century. I think it might help if we had some sort of context of what was happening in music at the time, what sort of forms were being experimented with, what sort of new techniques were being introduced. Could you give me a sense of the musical environment of the time? Well, in fact, it was an incredibly active time because Francesca's own father, Giulio Caccini, had been involved with this group called the Camerata, which is responsible really for the whole birth of opera as such although we can't really call these early music dramas operas in a pure sense, but they certainly are very important precursors. So Francesca was growing up in that sort of atmosphere at the Medici court, which absolutely crammed with musicians, budgets that these days we would absolutely dream of, and able to put on incredible court spectaculars. In fact, interesting because one of the first exciting things to happen in the Medici court is the great wedding that took place in 1589 with Christine of Lorraine and Ferdinando. And there was this incredible production put on of a, was a great big play. And then in between the acts of the play, these intermedi, which Caccini was probably present at, Francesca would have been only a child then, But this was part of the whole active courtly musical scene where these grand productions which bring together mythological stories, which again was a very popular subject for this sort of work at the time. And it's also the birth of expressive solo singing. After we've had centuries of polyphony, suddenly you're hearing the solo voice coming out and acting as part of singing. So I think it's highly revolutionary time, very exciting time for a woman like Caccini to have grown up in that environment because she would have got an education as well, which was unusual for a woman to get that kind of full education. Yes, and she seems to have been extraordinarily talented in almost everything musical she turned her hand to, whether it was singing, 
playing pretty much every stringed instrument there was, and of course in composition and in teaching. I mean, she really was the real deal, wasn't she? (laughs) She totally was. In fact, she ended up being the best paid musician in the court, which would have been unheard of in previous centuries for a woman to be able to hold a post like that. And what was she required to prepare by the time she had become employed by the Medici court for entertainment or for the church year? What were the different demands made of her? I think it would have been quite a mix of things. It's a great pity that so much of her music doesn't survive. We've only really got the primo libro of her solo songs. We know that she composed dozens of music theatre pieces, but unfortunately, La Liberazione di Ruggero is the only one that survives. But that would have been a lot of her work would have been for these court spectacles and entertainments. That in itself is telling because so much of her music was for private consumption. That may be one reason why we don't have records of it in the same way as we would for some grand public spectacle. I think it's more that the music that got published is what survives. And unfortunately, a lot of these court spectacles were not published. The reason why La Liberazione was published, well, because of the visit of the Polish prince and a performance was also done in Poland later. And I think that must have stimulated the actual production of an edition of this music. The rest of it, as just there written about, nothing survived. Very often, the music paper would have been recycled, used for something else. Sometimes musical scores have turned up that was used for wrapping up things. They didn't throw paper away in those days. Things got reused. So all her manuscripts are lost or repurposed. So let's talk about the printed work then. As you say, you've got this printed book of her songs, this collection of arias in Primo Libro from 1618. And as I understand, it's the first book of music by a woman and actually for women. Could you describe these arias musically? They very much are an extension onwards from what her father was doing in his Nuove Musiche, which she would have presumably studied extensively when she was taught singing by him. And they continue with this idea of song as a way of expressing text above all and every single nuance in the music. It's not about showing off the voice. It's about text all the way through expressing ideas with every part of your body, but it also embodies kind of female ideal of expression with honesty and purity and not with vanity. I think that's the best way I would sum them up. That's so interesting because, as you've alluded to, it is this Renaissance idea to move from the words of a song serving the music to making sure that song becomes a way of carrying ideas, carrying speech. That's crucial to the period. If you think about how this whole revolution in composing music was inspired by an idea of how Greek theatre was performed, if you think about those enormous amphitheatres with no amplification whatsoever, probably a song-like style would be used in order to carry the voice further, just as happens with chant in the church, that that prayers are intoned in the same way to carry the voice through where spoken voice would probably vanish. But when you speak and when you sing, it becomes one thing when the voice rises and falls in a natural way. And this is one of the problems about the way this music is often sung these days, looking backwards through a 19th century operatic voice where everything is about the tone and the production. And that way of singing completely destroys this earlier music, which was not conceived in that way. 
In many ways, I would prefer to hear it sung in a music theatre style, where you really are hearing the text and you're hearing the voice embodying what that text is saying and rising and falling like the voice does in speech. And the music follows those lines. I think that's the amazing thing about this early recitative. The musical shape even follows the way that the voice would rise and fall naturally. Is this something that Caccini and her contemporaries are creating for the first time, innovating? I think it gradually comes through. I mean, her father was writing at the very beginning of the 17th century. She's writing later, obviously. A Liberazione is from 1625. So we've moved on a generation. I actually do feel that even in certain polyphony from an earlier period, you still do sometimes find pieces where the text is really predominant. I'd say that's very true in the music of Josquin de Pre, for instance. But for it to become solo song like this, well, it's largely through the agency of women, because I think Francesca Caccini would have, as her father was, be very aware of the activities in the Ferrarese court in the 1580s onwards, where women were singing at court, the Concerto delle Donne. This is a huge inspiration for the kind of sounds that Francesca actually produces in her one surviving opera. And that's fascinating because if we think of the English equivalent of the time, of course we'll think of plays by Shakespeare and we'll think of women not performing, but actually this is a context in which women are performing musically and this is literally giving them a voice, isn't it? Absolutely true. We just don't have a parallel in England for a woman to perform. It was quite a dangerous thing to do, but there were ways in which she could do it and still keep her honesta. Yes, and that's stressed a lot in discussions of Cuccini, that she keeps this moral character. Yes, but that's also helped by the atmosphere she was working in, this kind of female-dominated court of the time where you had a female regent ruling. So it was in a completely female court. And there was this acceptance that it was all right for women to do that. In fact, I even think that Cuccini's opera is really telling us that as well, because you've got Alcina, the evil witch, who's the one who doesn't have any control over her emotions. She's the complete epitome of what a woman shouldn't be. And you have Melissa, who is probably a little bit more like Maria Magdalena, who was the duchess, who manages to be quite manly in her behaviour. And some people were quite nervous about the fact that she enjoyed hunting and horse riding and things like that but at the same time it was okay and there's a kind of reassurance that Melissa gives at the end of the opera saying it is all right women are not to be frightened of this as long as it is still within this code of what is acceptable from a woman. Isn't that fascinating? So an all-female court facilitates the rise of a woman composer who then creates an opera in which there are strong female characters who explore different dimensions of being a woman. Yes, and how the one in the end, Alcina, in fact burns up the entire island, which is all a complete fake anyway. Or her beautiful garden, in which the whole thing has been set with these imprisoned courtiers who have been turned into plants. It's the only opera I know that has a chorus of singing plants. <laughs> but at the end, the whole thing is just nothing. Alcina is another one of these, like she who must be obeyed, who's thousands of years old, but is kept young looking by magic. But it all disappears. And all she can do at the end is just fly away. And then Melissa then takes the stage and just, just calm down everybody. <laughs> In your conversation about it, it is 
impossible to resist calling it an opera. But let's talk a bit about that. It's obviously a very early example of the genre. You know, the genre itself is being created. It's a kind of experimental form. When would we say that opera arrives, I suppose? What does it demonstrate that leads to the creation of opera, perhaps? If you think about some of the very earliest operas, it doesn't fall into the neat patterns of recitative and aria and so on that you get later on. This stage, it's still an in-between style, which is not really recitative, it's not really aria. There are songs, simple triple-time songs in it, but a lot of it is in this style, which is halfway between recitative and aria. And it's more what we call monody, basically. It's more like the style of the solo songs that she wrote. There are choruses, of course, more choruses than you find in quite a lot of later operas. I've been struck in reading about her by the pressures under which she operated, that she was producing new works, including the equivalent of full-scale operas, whether we call them that or not, with only weeks to prepare. You know, she seems to have been subject to really intense and unrealistic expectations. Was this, you know, effectively a consequence of the model of patronage in which she worked? I would suspect so. It was a very strange kind of position that musicians had at court. They were seen as part of the family in one sense, and they got their dignity and their status from the ability that they had, their position as performers, would give them power. But at the same time, they were expected to work like slaves. She was very often quite stressed by the amount of work she needed to do because she was supposed to be teaching all the young singers as well as performing herself on several instruments, singing, writing, organising, all of that. I don't think she got much time off. Goodness knows how she managed to have children. Well, she didn't for 15 years. Perhaps she was just too stressed and there wasn't time. (laughs) What in the end do you think is most significant about Caccini's work? And I know this is so impossible because so much of it is lost, but of what we have, what's her contribution to music? As you say, we're judging it by two works. But if we just look at opera for a start, I think she made a big step forward with that work in terms of establishing that form as a more substantial piece of music. I think what Caccini did is she managed to bring in something that was slightly more general, more human, more about our everyday lives rather than this striving after classical purity. This is, after all, it's a setting from Orlando Furioso by Ariosto. So it's a setting of a modern idea rather than an old one. Even though this is a fantasy story, Orlando Furioso, I think without that we wouldn't have the ring, for instance, and we wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings. I think that that incredible story of magic and mystery and heroism all based on battles at the time of Charlemagne. So we're talking about real events here. And we were dealing with complex human emotions rather than the great big I'm a tragic figure, which is what you see a lot of in the earlier opera. Given that, why do you think she has been essentially forgotten by the musical world? All the way through my upbringing, I was never introduced to any female composers. And it's only really in the last few decades that this stuff is emerging. And there's so much of it coming out. My great friend and colleague, Professor Laurie Strauss, She has been discovering new female composers and female music from convents that nobody's ever even gone to investigate before. So I think that is the climate in which we need to be revisiting history and seeing it much more as her story as well as his. Great. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. If you enjoyed this episode, you might well enjoy one of our earlier episodes called The Renaissance Lute. It's with Dr. Linda Sace, one of Britain's leading lutenists. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.